At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, February 6, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Now, I was very down on football this year. I haven't even talked about or I didn't talk about the Super Bowl. And usually, you know, during the World Cup or a big event, I'll mention it here or there. But you probably saw it or at least saw highlights. And here's what I could do for you. I can arm you with some counterpoints for when someone says, that Edelman catch was the greatest I've ever seen. Or maybe, if you don't really need the counterpoints but haven't considered it, I could say something vaguely anti-patriot and you'll feel better about yourself. That Edelman catch was not the greatest. You could say this. Here's why. One, situation. So the Patriots are down by a touchdown, and they also need a two-point conversion, and there's a little over two minutes left. So that would argue for a situation, right? Not really. Brady was on fire. He was not going to be denied. This was a first down, 10 yards to go play. Here are the plays directly around that Edelman catch. Pass for 16 yards, an incompletion. Pass for 11 yards. That Edelman catch, pass for 20 yards, pass for 13 yards, pass for seven yards where he's tackled on the one and then the touchdown. Everything was going around the catch. The catch didn't happen. They were going to get down there anyway. So if you just want to relegate this to Super Bowl catches, that's where the stakes are highest. I mean, Santonio Holmes caught a Super Bowl winning touchdown pass with 35 seconds left. And then, of course, the Tyree catch, which they showed last night, where David Tyree stuck it up against his helmet. That was a third down and five. And speaking of the Tyree helmet catch, on the front end of that play, the, the quarterback of the Giants, Eli Manning, did some great stuff to escape a sack. And Brady didn't. Brady had a clean throw. Now, that's not anything against the Patriots. It just argued against it being the greatest catch of all time. What else does? Three, the parts that made it seem sensational, like all these other players on the Falcons just kind of flying around, actually weren't an impediment. They were an assist because the other players' hands and legs propped the ball up for moments. So it was cool. It was visually arresting, but all the arms and legs helped the ball not hit the ground. Fun viewing, did not add to the difficulty of the grab. Five, there was a randomness to this catch. Now, earlier in this game, Julio Jones made a sensational catch. It was on the sideline. He touched his toes in. He went way up in the air. It was just unbelievable. I liken that to a portrait by an old master where you could see the lines and you could see the shadows and he's doing something so clearly artistic. The Edelman catch was a Jackson Pollock, maybe a Picasso. It kind of explodes, it's visually arresting, but it's just not as classic. You know, the Julio Jones catch, that's like the quadruple axle, that thing that's unattainable for women in skating uh, thus far, that you train for, that you try with precision your whole life to attain. It is a craft, it is a skill, it is God's gift culminating. The Edelman catch was successfully going over Niagara Falls. I'd love to see a video of that, but I wouldn't try it more than once. All right, I hope, you know, when you get in your conversations on Greatest Catch Ever, now I could say stuff like that. That's my football take du jour. In the spiel, my politics take du jour. 
focusing on niceties. But first, I am joined by Adi Ignatius, editor of the Harvard Business Review, to talk about the Trump presidency and what business it has in the world of business. Well, we finally got that CEO president some have been clamoring for. Well, maybe not that CEO president as I consider Donald Trump. He certainly likes playing commander in chief. I just don't know about the executive function. Joining me now is Adi Ignatius. He's the editor in chief of the Harvard Business Review. We're going to talk Trump. We're going to talk business. And what's the business with Trump? Hello, Adi. How are you? I'm fine, Mike. How are you doing? I'm well. So in uh, HBR, there is a consideration of the costs of embracing Trump or running away from Trump. And this is something the business community, if you look at uh, what happened to Wall Street, they thought that he um, he would bring in good economic times and perhaps he shall. But now a lot of CEOs are having to weigh, well, how do we uh, say anything or not say anything about Donald Trump? It's become a lightning rod. Yeah, this is a tricky time because obviously there are issues that he talks about that have direct impact on companies and they need to be speaking either directly or behind the scenes. But then there are issues that just are so big and that, that sort of get at the very definition of what it is to be an American, what are American values, and companies are challenged, you know, do, what, are, what are the risks and rewards of speaking up? What are the risks and rewards of remaining neutral? So it seems like uh, different kinds of companies have different kinds of uh, calculations. So first, there are the companies with huge multinational businesses that might have actual physical plants in America. And he is going to govern by going after companies that say they're moving workers overseas. So it seems that the smart way to play this is to maybe get some concession, like announce that you're going to move overseas and then get some concessions when the president of the United States calls you on the phone. Yeah, I don't know if he governs that way, but he certainly threatens that way. And I think everyone in this country, everyone in the world is trying to figure out what is just rhetoric and what is going to translate into policy. So the one time I've dealt with Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. when I was a reporter, I was with Time Magazine. I honestly can't even remember. It's not a good anecdote because I can't remember the issue, but I remember exactly what happened. And I needed his comment. It was a slightly controversial thing. And I called up. He had this very nice elderly secretary. And I said, I need to speak to Mr. Trump. Hung up the phone. Immediately, he calls me back and starts yelling at me Uh and starts saying, you get anything wrong, I'm going to sue you. I'm going to go after you. I'm not afraid of anything. I have all the money in the world. And I'm just thinking, wow, we haven't even sort of talked about what we're talking about. Then he hangs up. Yeah. Then when his nice secretary arranges our conversation a day or two later, he's the nicest guy in the world. Yeah. Then suddenly he's – so. but he has kind of established – he has pushed forward, tried to put me back on my heels before he even knows what we're talking about. And I think you're sort of seeing a version of that. It's not – crazy. I think it's a method. Maybe. Although there might be craziness mixed in or in this madness, there'd be method. But first of all, how many um, how many business leaders have you talked to or interviewed in your career as a journalist, would you say? Uh, many, many, many. Dozens yeah. and dozens and dozens. How many have acted like that? <laughs> well, now, most business leaders, most leaders, when they talk to journalists like you and me, they put on their best behavior. Sure. They want us to like them. And I they want to not say anything controversial. want to not say anything controversial. Control. And yeah. we're not really sure, are we getting the real guy? Mm-hmm. Are we getting the guy? This is where Trump is different. I don't know if this will be good or bad. This is unlike anything we've ever seen. And it, it starts with and maybe is dominated by his personality. He doesn't respect institutions, including his own. 
Yeah. He respects himself, the power, and he's trying to see how that translates into real power. But it also strikes me for everyone who's saying someone with business experience or a CEO, um, I think his type of business or the way he defines business is so different, so diametrically opposed in many respects to how a CEO, especially of a publicly traded company, would define his job. Yeah, I think that's true. Look, I mean, companies don't have separation of powers, so he's going to have to figure out how to be effective. You know, the first thing you learn in a, in a business school program is being a good leader means empowering other people to be good leaders. Being a good leader means walking into a room and not saying, I want to do X. What do you think? It means shutting up, listening, you know, kind of not only to to bring out the best idea, the best option possible, but to make sure there's buy-in at the end, yeah. that you, you you end up with something and people are committed to it. I don't think that's how he's operating. He may get what he wants short term, but he doesn't get buy-in. You know, why are there so many leaks coming out of this administration? I mean, you know, Obama, like him or, or not, that was a pretty clean administration, corruption-free, relatively leak-free, you know, no drama. Yeah. This is all drama, and partly it's Trump it defines drama, but I think it's also partly because he's just winging it, and a lot of people are, are feeling disenfranchised and finding their own avenue. But then again, in his life, the Trump organization, it's an organization he built. It's not filled with people who he inherited. Though CEOs will sometimes take a job, and, you know, you take over a division or a whole company with people you inherited. So this is out of his comfort zone. He's never had to rely on hundreds of people to make his job easier who he hasn't met until they were thrust upon him. Right. What do we write? What does Harvard Business School teach? What do we put in the pages of HPR? It's about how to build and sustain a company for the long term. You know, we end up talking a lot about these softer skills, about how EQ is as important as Emotional IQ. Quotient, yes. yes. So while I think you're right, there's CEOs who, who are just my way or the highway, that's not, it's certainly not the fashion now. And that's not how, you know, most of the leaders who were celebrating as successful and transformative, how they act. This is not exactly management theory, but I would just point out he isn't in an okay position if what he's saying is I'll bring back jobs when the reality is the jobs picture is pretty good. <laughs> so if he's saying the jobs picture is going to be pretty good by denying what the unemployment rate is, he could just turn around and say, well, look at the unemployment rate, which is pretty good, or the carnage in the cities. The crime rate's pretty good. He has painted this picture of a horror show. If all it does is revert to the baseline of when he was in and he acknowledges that baseline, maybe enough people will buy that. Yeah, but does that get him reelected? I mean, he was exaggerating how bad those things were, and it resonated with his base that thought, yeah, things are this bad, things are, are worse. So if he says, hey, things are pretty good, and the reality in the hinterland is, no, they're not better, I don't know. Does he get yeah. away with it? I mean, then he's really kind of betrayed what he seemed to be talking about. Do you think other CEOs will have learned from the example of the CEO of Uber who essentially said, when the president comes and asks for advice, I will give him advice. Many CEOs have made this calculation, but he's been made to pay more than others have. So this business council that he's got, you know, I think a lot of them are thinking, my stakeholders are going to feel this is somehow an endorsement of the president. I'm not necessarily endorsing him. In fact, I want to have influence to affect what's happening, to change what's happening behind the scenes. You know, that's a familiar folly that, you know, a lot of people keep their seat at the table because I want to change things from within. I don't know what happens you know, behind the scenes. But the CEO of Uber decided that's probably a pipe dream. I'm getting a lot of bad publicity yeah. just for being in this thing. You know, Bob Iger found it convenient to say, oops, I'm busy. You know, this, but it's tricky. I mean, I also don't think we can expect CEOs to protest every outrage because they're kind of coming daily. And that doesn't mean they aren't protestable, you know, if you feel these things. But that's not really a CEO's role no, to be political 100% of yeah, the time. Yeah. And, you know, there is a backlash. You you speak out, the pro-Trump people 
boycott you, you don't speak out the anti-Trump people. I mean, it, it's if your fiduciary duty is to your business and your shareholders and all that, it's a little tricky exactly what you do and how many times you can say, or right, this crossed the line, I have to speak up. Do you think Uber is a somewhat vulnerable business because not only do they have a lot of immigrant workers uh, and people within who objected, though that's true of the other Silicon Valley companies, they're more susceptible to a sort of low stakes populist hashtag delete Uber movement in a way that GE and Disney are not. That's you know that's probably true, and it's you know it's easy enough to delete your Uber app and start taking Lyft or start yeah. taking you know these these other. So yeah, I guess yeah. that's relatively easy. I mean, it's there are a lot of people who aren't in favor of the way Uber manages its workers, the way it tries to bulldoze regulations, and yet we still use Uber because it is a great app and a great technology. And you know, will there be real sustained damage? I doubt it. If Trump loses the boardroom, uh, what would that look like and how would that hurt him? So already, you know, you're starting to see uh, Reid Hoffman, LinkedIn founder, is already trying to create almost a sort of a a CEO-led political movement. Mark Benioff has been doing that for a while, you know, with Salesforce. And I guess he will drive big money into more activist opposition. People are already talking about how do you how do you find candidates for 2018, for 2020. So I guess we're all more engaged in politics now, and these guys are too. And sure, I guess there's a, a cost in that way. But of course, as we said, the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, they care about their stock price. They care about their shareholders. Wall Street reacted by looking at what his proposals were with infrastructure and interest rates and saying, you know, our stocks should go up. I'm not going to ask you to forecast the market. But did that seem like a rational reaction to the Trump uh, election? I think so. So maybe the question is, is Trump good for business? OK. And, you if, know, if, yeah, if the Wall Street st- and the Dow Jones is a, or S&P is a proxy for quote unquote business. Yeah. yeah. So so obviously, I mean, this is not the biggest run up we've seen from election to inauguration. I think it's the sixth biggest run-up we've seen. Mm-hmm. The biggest run-up we ever saw was Herbert Hoover. You know, so you don't want to <laughs> put too much stock in... Uh, you should know, have been b- great for business. The guy's a genius. <laughs> exactly. You know, Bill Clinton's rise in that, you know, the percentage increase was, was yeah. higher than Trump's. On the other hand, you know, there's a, there's a Trump bounce. No doubt about it. Larry Summers in our interview called it a sugar high. He thinks it's short-lived. Now, if Trump can deliver on rationalizing the tax code on, you know, cutting taxes on the super wealthy, which will please the super wealthy, if he can get an infrastructure thing going. You know, I mean, he could get some early wins that will take steam out of the opposition. But this stuff's hard, getting an infrastructure plan. This is hard. You know, and this is where we really do have a separation of powers. We have a balanced government and you can't just tweet and you can't just sign executive orders and get all this done. You talked to you in the uh, latest HBR, you interviewed Larry Summers. What was the most surprising thing that he said to you? Well, I don't know if this was a surprise, but he made comparisons with 1930s Germany. He kept saying, oh, 1930s Germany. So I pressed him. I said, well, how far do you want to take that parallel? And he said, responsibly, he said, I'm not saying Donald Trump is Hitler, but... And I realized that even though, okay, very clear, Larry Summers was not saying Donald Trump was Hitler, but even that construction says we're in a very strange moment where, you know, a a responsible establishment guy like Larry Summers is even sort of throwing those, those names together. I got in a, a road rage argument with somebody. I was blocking the street the other day. And, you know, this woman's mad at me. And she says, you know, the problem is there are too many people like you. You're like Trump. And I was like, no, you're like Trump because you're yelling at me. I, I'll be out of you. Seems know, like a very Brooklyn argument. It's a very, yeah, it's a very Brooklyn argument. It's really about parking spaces. <laughs> and also the, the villain is Trump. 
<laughs> right. right. Yeah, in another part of the country, you know, you'd be like Hillary Clinton by taking someone's parking space. Well, you found me out. <laughs> Ignatius is the editor of the Harvard Business Review. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. The Trump administration scares people because people are rational actors and the Trump administration is scary. The loose talk of so-called judges, the threats to any institution that displeases him. Berkeley will take away your funding. Sanctuary cities will take away your funding. Schwarzenegger will take away your funding. Um, Mr. President, the apprentice doesn't get any federal funding. Well, give him funding so we can take it away. But the Trump presidency also scares people because people are irrational creatures and they look for patterns where there may be none. Or maybe there are. Who can say? But we do tend to fill in the gaps with anxiety. I'm not here to tell you everything's going well. I'm here to say there are certain lines of reasoning that the most scared among us cling to and they don't have to cling to them. The Trump administration, by the way, likes this. So, Some people would have you believe that there's a method in their madness. They will say that every bananas statement is a calculated effort to distract you from their actual policy, their kumquat policy. So what looks like chaos is actually chaos theory. And I would say, no, just chaos. And someone yelled the word theory to tack on to that. Let's contrast what the Trump administration has done with two recent initiatives. One are the executive orders on immigration. Leaks to major news outlets abound. Criticism from other Republicans. A very on-message Mike Pence being asked about the administration writing out not the liberal media, not the so-called judges, not writing them out of the process, but writing out this fellow party members in Congress, would-be stakeholders. Here's what Pence said on Meet the Press. It was not done hastily. Uh, I... Uh, there, there may have been some leaders on Capitol Hill that were not informed in the usual niceties of Washington, D.C. But look, we live in a very dangerous world. Here's Pence on Face the Nation. You know, we'll, we'll concede that sometimes the usual Washington niceties of informing members of Congress were not, you know, fully, fully implemented as they've been in the past. And why not for the trifecta on this week? And the American people welcome the decisiveness that President Trump has shown on this issue, putting the safety and security of the American people above the niceties of communicating with people in Washington or in some cases around the world. The thing is that members of the legislative branch have these weird feelings about niceties. They think they're nice. And when they don't get the niceties, which they may be crazy enough to think of by words other than niceties, words like norms or necessities, when denied the niceties, they get not nice. And how's that help what the Trump administration is trying to achieve? So let's contrast that with the Gorsuch rollout. Trump did a normal press conference. He pleased Republicans with his pick. He got the stakeholders on board. It was nice. How's it going since then? For the Republicans, pretty nice. The Democrats say they'll try to block it. Mitch McConnell essentially says, nice try. So you see the power of niceties slash norms slash normalcy? Now we, we in the pre-post-truth world, we look at, say, Kellyanne Conway's reference to the Bowling Green Massacre and say, wow, total fiction. She says, oh, I misspoke that once. Then Cosmopolitan says, no, we have her on record saying the same thing to us. And in fact, TMZ, TMZ, the lamestream, famestream media unearths this interview 
slash airport stalking session as they do from a little over a week ago. He did that because, I assume, because there were two Iraqis who came here, got radicalized, joined ISIS, and then were the masterminds behind the Bowling Green attack on our brave um, soldiers. Well, beyond the fact that there was no Bowling Green attack, she has not just her phrase muddled, but her timeline. The Iraqis didn't come here and get radicalized. The Iraqis, who moved to Bowling Green and were part of the non-massacre, they set their bombs in Iraq in 2006. Then they came to Bowling Green, and then they were nabbed by the feds years later. So giving this timeline is like saying Dillinger robbed the Biograph Theater, or Whitey Bulger was responsible for the Santa Monica massacre. No, those guys were caught there. And Kellyanne got caught saying a lie. Or maybe not. Maybe she didn't know she was making things up. She just didn't care. Now, it's a temptation to say, you know what the Trump administration is doing? They're playing a game. They're blowing up the truth. And we have no way of holding them to account. Well, what's the proof of that? To me, Bowling Green Massacre seems like this funny, ridiculous shorthand that penetrates the national consciousness and becomes a, you know, it depends what the meaning of is is, or it becomes one of those, if you like your coverage, you can keep your coverage. I mean, we're far away from a political race, but I could see someone saying, oh yeah, just like the Bowling Green Massacre except there'll probably be plenty of new fodder. Lastly, I want to call out for meritorious achievement an excellent interview with a prevaricating member of the administration. Here's Chris Cuomo holding to account Sebastian Gorko. Sebastian Gorko emphatically will tell you he's a PhD, though he won't mention it's not from an accredited American university. Here he was on CNN with Cuomo talking about 2011 when the Obama administration halted and overhauled the Iraqi refugee program for a few months. Isn't it interesting that when he did it, nobody had a problem? He didn't even tell the press in 2011 when he brought his ban in. And finally, wasn't a ban. nobody, when he put a temporary moratorium on people coming here. It wasn't a moratorium. Iraq, it slowed the process down as you can I finish? To. Can I finish? I just want you to be accurate. Go ahead, sir. Can I finish? Isn't it interesting that when we have a Republican president, suddenly it's an issue? Uh, I, think, I that, think that's two double standards, Chris. It would be if it were apples to apples, and it isn't. And now let me give you the visual. Cuomo's in the studio, the nice warm studio. Gorka, he's outside on the White House lawn and you can see his breath in the cold. He's so desperate to be on TV and entranced by his own sonorousness. I suspect you can freeze the moment where he lies and analyze what a prevarication looks like from his breath. Like snowflakes, no breath prevarications are alike, but as with a blizzard, there are plenty of them to choose from. And that's it for today's show. Chris Berube, just producer, has dispensed with all those nuances of lip-piercing training. Mary Wilson, just producer, eschews the usual refinements associated with the handling of wastewater runoff. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, no longer bows down to those who stick to the blandishments of not screaming at endangered species in the wild. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, has no use for the pleasantries of just not calling guys fatso. The gist, theory, Pence didn't mean niceties. He was obviously reading from a script and he was saying Donald Trump doesn't believe in nice ties. I think this could be correct. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening.